struggle at times to believe that God is both sovereign and good in all circumstances? Do you, do you struggle at times to really believe that God's on his throne, especially in those unraveled moments? Or perhaps it's not his sovereignty, it's his goodness. Do you struggle to believe that God is good, that he loves you, that he's for you? Or perhaps it's this question, do you struggle at times to know how to engage culture in a God-glorifying way? Do you find yourself at times wrestling with the question, of, am I going too far? Am I, am I maybe compromising my faith as I press in, grabbing hold of the value of syncretism? Or maybe it's the opposite for you. Maybe it's the, the challenge of the separatist, removing yourself from culture, um, contributing to and participating in that epidemic known as holy huddle Christianity. As you look through your list of contacts in your cell phone and realize, they're all Christians. What do I do with that? Or perhaps it's the question, do you struggle at times with the purpose that God has for your life? Do you find yourself at times going, why here and why now, God? What are you up to? Or maybe it's the, the struggle with the mundane. You find yourself in moments when life gets really super boring. and You're trying to sort through, what, what is God at, at work doing now in the midst of what appears to be uh, greatly insignificant? These are just a, a few of the questions that the book of Daniel invites us to ask. And so if you find yourself wrestling with these kind of questions, good. You're in good company. All of Christendom wrestles with questions like these, which is why God is really gracious to give us this book of the Bible along with all the other ones that make up the canon of Scripture. I don't know about you, but, but just when I think that I've got the sovereignty and goodness of God all squared away, got, got my theological framework intact, all of a sudden something comes unraveled, and yet again I'm I'm wrestling with the question of whether God really loves me, he's really for me, whether he's really seated on his throne. Just when I think I've got the whole cultural engagement thing down pat, some new situation presents itself. And yet again, I face the question of whether or not I've got my head screwed on straight as it pertains to missionally living this thing called the Christian life out. Just when I think that I've figured out God's purpose for my life, some, some plot twist takes place. And yet again, I'm I find myself wrestling with the question of whether or not I truly believe that God knows what he's doing, whether he actually has a plan for me. I have a lot of those incredibly boring moments where I find myself going, is God really at work in the midst of this, this, this insignificant season of life, at least as it appears from my vantage point? And so I've said this before, I'll say it again. The book of Daniel is, is meant to be a weapon that we add to our arsenals a weapon of truth that we can then wield like a sword in those moments of doubt, in those moments of unbelief when they rear their ugly heads. Not just for the next three months, but for the rest of our lives, that we could come back to this book and go, God, you revealed yourself in this way to me as I engage this book of the Bible with the church. And I'm going to wield that truth 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when I find myself in those moments of doubt, when I find myself wrestling with those very questions that we just walked through. That this book of the Bible, along with every other book of the Bible, is not meant to just be about obtaining information, but rather information that as we obtain it leads to gospel transformation. That makes sense? That's what we're after as a church. And we're convinced that it's nearly impossible to experience that without getting smaller. And so, again, shameless plug for community groups. We're all for that. We believe that much of the gospel transformation that happens in our lives tend to happen as we get smaller in dialogue with others about the things that we're going through, about the, the doubts, the fears, the sin and unbelief that we're wrestling with and how the gospel applies to those things. And so with that being said, previously on Daniel, 
right? This is, we're going to do that every week through this series because I just like to say it. Picking up where we left off last week, Daniel and his friends have been taken into captivity to Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, has enrolled them in the University of Babylon with coursework in astrology, uh, mythology, fortune telling, and dream interpretation. The boys are given new names, which is a big deal because the names they had been given at birth were representative of God's character and redemptive work. And now they've been given names that are representative of pagan gods. The boys are ultimately faced with the question of what it means to live in a pagan wasteland for the glory of God. What it means to trust God's unchanging character in the midst of ever-changing circumstances. That's what much of chapter 1 is about. Daniel's faithfulness but not a faithfulness absent of God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's grace. Things are not what they seem. Daniel 1 isn't simply the story of a mighty Babylonian king conquering a not-so-mighty nation. Daniel chapter 1 isn't simply the story of a rebellious people experiencing the consequences of their sin. Rather, Daniel 1 is ultimately the story of a sovereign God who, despite appearances, is seated on his throne. He hasn't lost control of the wheel. He's not sweating it from his throne in the heavenlies. He's at the helm and he knows what he's doing, no matter how things may appear. And in fact, as the curtain closes on chapter 1, we're told that God is the very reason that Daniel and his buddy graduate with honors from the most pagan university on planet Earth at the time. That God gives Daniel and his friends the wisdom, the understanding, and the skill necessary to impress the king. And so the king decides to put Daniel and his buddies on his payroll and as we pick up the story this week, th- things get really, really interesting. I- I'm, ex- I'm as excited about this chapter of the Bible. Um, I-, I tried to think back, when was I as excited as I am right now? Probably when we were on the high seas with Jonah back in January. So I'm stoked. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that for free. It's yours makes us very excited that you would walk out with that book if you don't own one or if you have a translation that is really difficult to understand. If you've already found this morning's passage, some of you may find yourself uh, with your heart pace increasing as you look at the number of columns that this chapter of the Bible takes up. Maybe right now you're going... Are we going to order in for lunch and dinner? Like, how are we going to, are you just going to read the passage and then pray and then we'll take communion? That's going to be the sermon this morning. Um, But let me just encourage you and say that um, there is much for us in this chapter. Um, This is one literary unit, one sub-story within the greater story. And God has much to say that we can get really excited about. And at the same time, we're going to get out of here at the same time we do every single week. So breathe easy, slow down, take a few deep breaths. This isn't the SAT. It's going to be fine, okay? Let me pray for us and even pray for um, some of us who experience uh, that angst even as we look down at the text right now. And then we'll get to work. God, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for every book of the Bible, every book that makes up the canon of Scripture. Because in in each of those books, you reveal yourself to us in significant and particular ways. God, I pray this morning that your word would not return void. We know it will not. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a mighty way. We pray that you would awaken our minds and hearts to things that we, many of us, already know, but find our hearts 
moved into a slumber with respect to. God, would you, would you awaken, uh, awaken uh, us from our zombie-like state that so many of us find ourselves in the midst of cultural Christendom walking in? God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Awaken us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, let me, let me start by asking a simple question this morning. And if you say no, you're a liar. Do you ever find yourself struggling with what the future holds? Anybody? Maybe losing sleep at night over the uncertainty of, of what lies ahead in your life? Well, here's the thing. If the answer is yes, if you're not a liar, according to Daniel chapter 2, you're not alone. Look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. All right, at this moment in human history, Nebuchadnezzar is the leader of the free world for all intents and purposes. The most powerful man on the planet and the dude can't sleep. Meanwhile, displaced, exiled Daniel is sleeping well at night. At, at verse 1, we don't even have to move into verse 2. You're meant to see something already of God turning the tables. What's going on here? Oftentimes when we think of characters like uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the scriptures, um, characters that are antagonistic uh, to, to God and his purposes, we oftentimes label them as irreligious. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar is a very religious man. He's, he's incredibly disturbed by, by the fact that uh, he's received a divine vision that he can't make sense of. As one commentator puts it, he's a walking paradox of power and fear. Good thing he's got some boys on the payroll who can help him out, right? Verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Okay, so the Babylonians would look for meaning in any place they could find it. Maybe you found yourself um, out on a, a sunny day, but the clouds are out, and you're just so confused at life and what God is up to that you're looking for shapes in the clouds. Like God just turning into an animal or something, a lion, that'll tell me to have courage. Like, I don't know what that looks like for you. But, but whenever it all starts to come unraveled, we get very subjective, don't we? Same thing's true for Babylon. Um, the skies, they would look for strange birth defects and seek to, to find the divine in that. They would look at the shape of animal organs when they killed an animal and, and opened, opened it up and looked at its insides dreams, and, and on and on we could go. They, ha they had their list of things that they would run to in the name of uh, seeking to find out where the story was going. Sounds a bit odd, but again, we all do it. We all turn to people and things in an effort to find meaning in life. It's what it means to be human, right? We long for meaning. We long to understand the world. We long to understand our place in it. And so these divinely inspired dreams, like the one Nebuchadnezzar experiences, were considered to be a sign, a sign of, of where things were going, a sign of future things to come, a sign of uh, ways that the empire could be critically impacted. And so the interpretation of these dreams was considered to be of utmost importance. A proper interpretation would allow for either a rewriting of the script of human history or at least a bracing of yourself to know what's coming. And so many ancient Near Eastern kings, including Nebuchadnezzar, had a department of staff members devoted to dream interpretation. And they had gone so far as to even, uh, even develop dream manuals. And they would compare people's dreams to what they found in the dream manual to make sense of it. And so 
super cheesy, but you could say Nebuchadnezzar brings in his dream team, right? That's, that's how this thing unfolds. Continuing in verse 2, we're told, they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. Right? These guys are excited. They're chomping at the bit. This is what we do, man. Dogs bark. Cats meow. Goonies never say die. Like, we, this is what we do. Like, we interpret dreams. It's our thing. We have our opportunity. This declaration is really funny. It's dripping with irony. Oh, king, live forever. And yet what the king's very dream is going to tell us is that he won't live forever. He has an expiration date. Just like every other leader in human history. Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. All right, I, I don't know what you picture when you picture these guys, maybe Merlin, you know, big pointy hat. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of sorcerers and magicians. I picture these guys uh, a little nerdy, a little on the nerdy side. They're walking around with all their dream commentaries, you know, pushing their glasses up on their noses. Um, I'm sorry, sir. What did, what did you just ask us to do? You know, just kind of freaking out in the moment. The king's asking not just for the interpretation, but the actual contents of the dream. In fact, his declaration is basically, I don't care about the interpretation alone. I want you to tell me what I dreamed last night. Like, well, if someone came up to you and, and asked you to do that and said, your head's on the chopping block, what would you say? I would freak out. Like, that's not normal. Not even for Nebuchadnezzar. This is at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and so likely what's happening here is he's putting these boys to the test. Can you, can you really step up to the plate? It's one thing to say that you can pull out your dream commentary and, and tell me, uh, based on a few things that you see in the dream, what it means, but let's not play this guessing game. I want you to tell me what I dreamed so that we can see if your interpretation itself is legitimate. And so verse 7, picking up the story, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. In other words, sir, we didn't go to school for this. Right? We're not schooled in being able to tell people what they dreamed. We tell people what their dreams actually mean. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. He's not budging. King's not budging on his demand. And listen intently, okay, because this is the crux of chapter 2 upcoming. Verses 10 and 11, listen carefully to how his pagan dream team responds. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. 
interesting. So only the gods are glorious enough to be able to reveal what the king is asking for, and yet the gods don't dwell with or interact with man. So here's my question. How do these guys know that their god or gods are capable of this feat in the first place? If their gods don't interact with man, how do they know anything about their gods? At best, these guys should be agnostic. Maybe we can know something about the divine. Maybe we can't. Who could ever know? That would be intellectually sensible. It makes no sense to say that you know something with certainty about your God or gods and at the same time affirm that your God or gods don't interact with human beings. It's irrational. It reveals the futility of pagan religion. These guys are walking contradictions, and here's why. Because without divine revelation, I've said it before, we're left with nothing more than human speculation. At best. We're meant to have our ears perked by verse 11. If you're a Christian, that language of deity dwelling with flesh should catch your attention. All right, we'll come back to that momentarily, but let's move on with the story. Verse 12. Because of this... Because of this response from his dream team, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Off with their heads, right? He's the king of hearts. This guy has a a serious anger management problem. You're going to find this out as we continue on through the book of Daniel. He's got issues. Verse 13. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. No problem with that. Kill a few more pagans, right? And they sought Daniel, uh uh-oh, and his companions to kill them. So it's not just the pagans whose lives are on the line. Remember, Daniel and his buddies have been put on the payroll too. They're considered to be a part of the king's posse of wise men. All of a sudden, if God doesn't intervene, the book of Daniel is going to be one of the shorter books of the Bible, right? Two chapters long, and we're done. Verse 14 We're told, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. You talk about an act of boldness. We're, We're right in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's moment of fury and rage. Daniel could have been fed to the lions right here, right now, right? Just fast forward to chapter 6. We don't even have to get there. He just gets dropped in the lion's den right here in chapter 2. But, but again, going back to week 1 of this series, remember, according to the Bible, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds favorably. Verse 17 Then Daniel, we're told, went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So there's no perusing of the self-help section of Barnes & Noble at this point. That there's no pulling out the whiteboard and kind of scripting uh, this sort of life-saving strategy in this moment. The boys are keenly aware that apart from divine intervention, they're done for. And so they do what most of us do when we figure out that we're out of options. They pray. 
And God actually comes through. Verse 19, we're told, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So God actually does it. God actually reveals not just the interpretation, but the contents of the king's actual dream. That's crazy. You're telling me that God can do things like that? The God of Israel can. You better believe it. And then what? Then Daniel wakes up in a cold sweat and makes a beeline for the king's palace, right? No. Oh, I know. Then Daniel prays for the next thing on his list that he needs God to respond to, right? No. What are we told? We're told that Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel responded. He fell on his face in prayer. Listen to this prayer. Listen to this, the, the beauty of this prayer. Daniel answered, verse 20, and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, verse 23, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. I don't know about you, but this section of chapter 2 is deeply convicting to me. It's so easy for me to move on to the next request of God. To fail to slow down and thank him for who he is and what he's doing, what he's done in my life. If anyone should be entitled to a free pass, it's the guy whose life is on the chopping block, right? I mean, the king has a short fuse, the clock's ticking, let's go, brother. Let's, get, let's speed up this process. And yet Daniel slows down and falls to his knees in thanksgiving and praise, in gratitude to his God, declaring the excellencies of his God. I think a diagnostic question for us this morning would be, what might it look like for you to slow down? What, what might it look like for you to, to take a moment to pause and to acknowledge just who God is and what he's doing, what he's done in your life. To slow down long enough to declare his excellencies. To, to not just make our prayer life a life of petition when things heat up. That's what religious people do. The gospel opens the door for a life, not just of petition, but of, of praise and adoration of the God who, who saves, who redeems, who works in the lives of his people. I want to point out something about this prayer, but... But I'm going to hit pause for now. I'm going to wait to do that. Moving on with the story. Verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. This, this is a tense moment for the audience. You should feel it in your shoulders a little bit at this point. Yet our boy Daniel seems to be pretty confident, doesn't he? I got, the, I got the goods. Take me into the king. Let's do this thing. Right? He, he's walking with a little bit of a, a swagger. So I think we have to ask ourselves, is Daniel full of himself at this point in the story? Is God just at work so much in his life that he kind of uh, finds himself navel-gazing, looking inward at himself? Well, let's find out. Let's keep on reading. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. 
the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now we see with crystal clarity that Daniel's confidence is not in himself. There's a God in heaven. Who reveals. This entire chapter is not just about the contrast between Daniel and the rest of the wise men of Babylon. But ultimately between the contrast of Daniel's God and their gods. We're meant to see the futility of pagan religion in stark contrast to the excellencies of the God of Israel. Are you seeing it yet? Continuing on, the end of verse 28. Your dream, Daniel says, and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, future things. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Again, Daniel makes clear that he's not banking on human wisdom, on human speculation, but rather on divine revelation. And he begins to unpack this mysterious dream. Here we go. Now we, now we finally get to see what's got the king in a cold sweat. Verse 31. You now, O king, or you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Okay, so here's the dream. A great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you look, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there's the dream. You have this magnificent statue of a man that's made up of four parts. A head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, and then legs and feet of iron and clay. And you have this tiny little rock that strikes this massive statue, breaking it into thousands of pieces. Pieces so small that they just blow away in a breeze. Meanwhile, the tiny little rock grows into a mountain big enough to fill the entire earth. Now, what in the world does that mean? Thank you, Jesus, that this passage doesn't end at verse 35. We have an answer. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now, Daniel says, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you, you are the head of gold. The head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire, the most precious of metals, Represented in all this statue. 
And yet, once again, we're reminded that even the most powerful and mighty of leaders is only so because of God. Daniel may as well have said, Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven gave you your kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven gave you your power. Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven gave you your might. Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven gave you your glory. You even get this Genesis 2 language here in these verses. This idea of ruling over the the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. This exercising of dominion that God called his image bearers to do from the very beginning. But it was never meant to, to be a call to exercise dominion autonomously. It was meant to be a call to exercise dominion with bended knee to the one true king. And Nebuchadnezzar's not there, at least not yet. Like Adam, if he sins, he can be cast out of the garden, so to speak. Cast from his exalted position of authority. And so verse 39 tells us, Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, let me just briefly mention what's going on here. Much more to come when we get to chapter 7. By God's grace, chapter 7 affords us an opportunity to get a second glance at these four kingdoms so we can dive in a little bit more when we get there. But for now, suffice it to say that most conservative scholars argue that the head of gold represents Babylon. That one's pretty clear in the text. The arms and chest of silver represent Medo-Persia, You have Cyrus and the Persians who come along after the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus is the one who sends the Israelites back out of exile um, to uh, Jerusalem. The the belly and thighs of bronze represent Greece, Alexander the Great, the Hellenizing of the known world at the time. And the legs of iron and clay represent Rome and all of the Caesars in power. And so you you have this succession of empires, which makes sense if you keep on reading, because you find that verse 44 tells us, in the days of those kings, so in the days of Roman rule, coming out of that succession of empires, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Whose kingdom is that? Sunday school answer, let's go. Jesus, yes. Jesus himself, in Luke 20, the parable of the wicked tenants, refers to himself as the stone in Daniel 2. He doesn't leave us guessing. In the days of Roman rule, Jesus will set up a kingdom with humble beginnings. It will start off a very small stone. A kingdom advanced not by power and conquest, but through suffering and death. The smallest of mustard seeds, it becomes an unstoppable force. A kingdom that will never be handed off to the next in line to the throne because there will never be another next in line to the throne. Jesus is the eternal king and his kingdom shall know no end. In fact, his kingdom shall grow from a small stone into a great mountain that shall fill the earth. Our God is a God of the nations. A God whose gospel goes forth to the four corners of the earth. He goes on to say, 
the end of verse 44. This kingdom of God shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms, and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. It's what the king was hoping for, right? Don't drag me around. I want to know legitimately what this dream is all about. And Daniel declares it. All of the kingdom building efforts in the name of self, for the glory of self, will be brought low. And that's not just for Nebuchadnezzar. That's not just for Cyrus. That's not just for Alexander the Great. It's not just for Caesar Augustus and all of those who came after him. That's for you. That's for me. We can build kingdoms of our own making for the sake of our own names, for our own glory, and they will be blown away like chaff in a breeze. They will not stand. But the Bible tells us that there's a God whose kingdom shall never end. And you can play a part in the building of that kingdom, and your efforts will not be in vain. Now you begin to see, coming back to verses 20 through 23, Daniel's prayer, why he bursts forth in praise. All you sorcerers and magicians, you, you, you say you worship these so-called gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, but how can you know anything about these gods if they don't dwell among you? Your best hope is agnosticism. Your best hope is an I don't know, maybe we can't know, maybe we can't. But I serve a God, Daniel says, verses 20 through 23, who's powerful and wise. I serve a God who changes times and seasons. I serve a God who removes and sets up kings. Even you, Nebuchadnezzar. I serve a God who gives wisdom to the wise. I serve a God who gives knowledge to those who have understanding. I serve a God who reveals deep and hidden things. I serve a God who knows what's in the darkness. How do I know, Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 23, because my God makes known. Your so-called gods have no dwelling with man. Your so-called gods can't tell you anything. Which is why you need the human initiative of a bunch of court jesters to help you out. My God tells me who he is. My God tells me where the story's going. My God tells me where I can find hope. Without divine revelation, we're left with nothing more than human speculation. Praise the name of the God who reveals. We're not left to human speculation. You can know God. And I'm not just talking to the non-Christians in the room right now. This is for all of us. You can know God. You can know what God is like. We're not left guessing. I was deeply convicted by the jokes that are oftentimes made that leave books like Leviticus bearing the brunt of the mockery. God didn't have to give us that book of the Bible. He could have just gone Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But he determined that there's something that we could know about him and about ourselves and about the way this world actually works and where the story's going by giving us that book of the Bible along with all of the other ones. It's so convicting to think about the fact that millions of people rolled out of their beds this morning with no certainty as to whether there's something bigger out there. 
no certainty as to whether there is a God, no certainty as to whether that God cares about us, no certainty about whether that God or gods wants to know us, whether, whether that God or pantheon of gods uh, just wound up the clock of human history and just left us to our own devices, no certainty as to whether that God loves us, whether that God is seated on his throne, which makes it grievous that we function as agnostics many days of our lives, even as Christians, as our Bible sits on the nightstand just gathering dust. You can know the Bible's not boring. Isn't it ironic that God makes this point clear in a chapter that's 49 verses long? He's like, just when you think this book is boring, it's not. This story is glorious. It's our fickle hearts that are the problem, not the Bible. The Bible is proof of a God who wants to be known and who wants to know us. What a gift. A God who loves you enough to leave you with something more than just your own speculative thoughts. Praise the name of the God who reveals. And he doesn't just reveal himself to us in terms of the scriptures, in terms of his word. He reveals himself to us in the beauty of the gospel. Coming back to verse 11. The gods of pagan religion... Their dwelling's not with flesh. Nebuchadnezzar's dream team declares that to be true. But the God of Christianity, not only is he the God who dwells with flesh, he's the God who became flesh. John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Apostle Paul goes a step further in telling us why Jesus became flesh. It was so that he could die, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived the life that we could never live in perfect fellowship with the Father. All those moments that you don't pick your Bible up off of your nightstand, Jesus died for that. There's grace, and it's sufficient. That's good news. We don't have to wallow in our inadequacies. Because we have a Jesus who is perfectly adequate in our place for us. That's the gospel. A Jesus who died our death, a sinner's death. So that we could stand before God and, and know him. And not just now, but forever. A God that we could enjoy making much of for eternity. You see, our hope, our hope is not in clawing our way through the clouds of human speculation in some attempt at grasping the divine. That was the hope of Nebuchadnezzar and his army. Our hope is in a God who came down. A God who reveals. A God who doesn't leave us clawing. Our hope is in Jesus whose kingdom shall never end. We even get a taste of that glorious truth as chapter 2 comes to a close. Look at verse 46. I love this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? I feel a little embarrassed for Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. You have the most powerful man in the known world falling on his face before an exiled Jew. Just one more reminder of who's really seated on the throne. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar is necessarily converted. 
at this moment. In fact, many scholars believe that he simply adds the God of Israel to his pantheon. Just one more God to be worshipped among many gods. But, but there is something fascinating going on here. The, the word, the Hebrew word translated that phrase paid homage in verse 46. It's the Hebrew word segid. It shows up 11 times in chapter 3, the story of the fiery furnace. We'll get there next week. And with every one of those 11 times, it has to do with the worshiping, the paying homage to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Before we ever even get to that story, we find Nebuchadnezzar on his face before the God of Israel. That's pretty cool, man. Yet another declaration that every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. There's only one true king, and guess what? Nebuchadnezzar ain't it. I love how this chapter ends. Verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. As we close this chapter, Daniel and his friends are assigned positions of responsibility. It's as if God is saying, hey, don't, don't use chapter 2 to just wait it out. Don't, don't, don't do that thing that Christians oftentimes do, that it would be really easy to do. Jesus is coming soon, so I'm just going to kick back and declare with the apostle John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Knowing that Jesus is coming soon is meant to compel us to dig our heels in for the sake of the gospel. To be spent for the glory of God. Here's a provocative question to wrestle with as we close this morning. It's one that I, I think about every so often. Maybe should think about more. But I think it's helpful for us as a body to think about. The question is this. If our church disappeared from the landscape tomorrow... Would anyone around us notice and grieve the loss? And I'm not talking about us. I'm not talking about those who represent this church family. I'm talking about those who our lives intersect with in this community and its outlying regions. It's just another way of asking, how are you digging your heels in for the sake of the gospel? What does that look like? How are you being spent for God's glory in this season of your life? Because here's the reality. We all have a glorious opportunity to reveal to an unbelieving world the God who reveals. To tell people about a God that they can actually know. To meet them in the midst of their doubts, in the midst of their speculations, in the midst of their questions, in the midst of their can we or can't we know. A God who not only dwells among flesh but became flesh so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're going to take communion in just a moment. We do so here by taking the bread, dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. James will invite us up momentarily to receive of the elements. If you are a Christian, as you prepare to take of the bread and the cup, I would, I would invite you to, to just sit with um, the, the Spirit and ask the Spirit of God to work in your heart to perform an awakening, to, to waken you out of your slumber, whether, it, whether it's a, a minuscule slumber or one that you found yourself in for months, maybe even years, to awaken your heart to the beauty 
of the word of God, that God has actually revealed himself to us, that we can know what he's like. We can know that he's real. We can know that he exists. We can know how he feels about us. We can know to what extent he would come to redeem us. We can know. Coming back to the original question that started out this sermon, uh, do you find yourself losing sleep at night for what's to come? Oftentimes when I lose sleep, it's because what's to come, uh, meaning Jesus and his eternal kingdom, isn't enough for me. Right? We know what's to come. Christ, he's our gain. It's when everything else doesn't seem to come together in the way that I want it to, that Christ just isn't enough, and I can't sleep well. But we know how this story ends, because the Bible tells us so. We have a glorious gift, not just the word of God, but the God of the word that we can know relationally. Sit with that. Ask the Holy Spirit to stir in your heart, to awaken your heart to the beauty and wonder of this gift, to the beauty and wonder of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you see the the stark contrast between the futility of pagan religion and the beauty of the Christian worldview, the beauty of the gospel. That if you find yourself clawing to try to figure out who God is, whether he's really there, if you find yourself trying to build this metaphorical stairway to heaven, so to speak, that you would stop and just acknowledge that God came down, that God stooped. In Calvin's words, that he, he spoke baby talk so that we could understand him. That's the grace of God. Jesus came. He came so that you don't have to claw your way to God. You couldn't anyway. And, and if God works in you in that way, if you're not a Christian and God awakens you spiritually in that way, tell somebody about it. Like we don't. We don't do the walk an aisle and fill out a card and pray a prayer thing every week. And so it's really hard for us to know what God's doing on the landscape of this church at times. Tell somebody if God is at work. Even, I said it before, I'll say it again. Even if you've walked through this culturally Christian life for decades and you go, man, I, I think I thought I was a Christian for 20 years and now I don't think I was. And that terrifies me to tell somebody. Do it. Do it for the sake of the gospel so that the glory of God can be declared that he works in the most miraculous ways to wake people from the dead. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.